again, as I'm reading Irenaeus, first of all, I'm not understanding half of what he's saying. Uh, this line in here when he says, uh, that tradition derived from the apostles of the great, that very ancient and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. Irenaeus knows that the church is actually founded in Jerusalem when Jesus, you know, commissions the 12, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. at Pentecost when, you know, they're, mm-hmm. you know, and filled with the yeah. Holy Spirit and, and move on. He's making a point about where headquarters is now. I mean, he's making a clear yeah. point that this is where yeah. the central no. offices are now located. Okay, ring the bells. Okay, yeah, yeah, because when you think of it, Peter founded the church in, Jer- in Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to another faster, higher, and stronger episode of On the Journey. Thank you for being with us uh, during this season when uh, we're all kind of all over the place for the summer. Ken and I have been taking some time off. We just got back started up last week. We are now really cranking into questions of Peter and the papacy and church history. But before we do that, Mm -hmm. I want to tell you to visit us at chnetwork.org. If you want to find out more about Ken Hensley or myself, Matt Swaim, and how we both became Catholic, or if you want to plug into our community of people who are exploring this question as we speak. And one of the ways to do that is our October retreat, our Coming Home Network retreat in Houston. So if you're at any point in your journey, you want to meet with other people who are Mm -hmm. as well and get some good support. Ken, I know that these are a highlight for you because you are usually there for them. Yeah, and I'll be there. Really enjoy it. All right, very quickly before we get into the topic, what do you think is your favorite part of the Coming Home Network retreats? Well, the thing I love about the retreats is that they're not oriented around people sitting in rows and listening to lectures eight hours a day. They're, they're oriented toward people, uh, for, for people who are on the journey to any degree, having plenty of time to discuss together. So there's a, we just spend a lot of time talking together and hearing each other's stories. They're, they're, they're great times. I mean, when and that's going to be October or what? What are the dates? The 11th through the 14th. And okay. uh, be prepared to stay up talking about amazing things with amazing people. These are they're really fun times. chnetwork.org slash retreats if you want to check those out. But in the meantime, Ken. Back, back to Peter. Back to Peter. And we're actually going yeah. beyond Peter into the, we've been in, hanging yeah. out in the New Testament. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the, the early centuries of Christianity, those earliest days mm-hmm. post-New Testament and kind of what's going on. Yeah, we're making a shift here today. We've dealt with the biblical material, looking at the extraordinary prominence of Peter in the Gospels and in the early chapters of Acts, the, that statement of those statements of Jesus in um, Matthew 16 and, and other places. We've looked at the biblical material and we're moving today to look at the the primacy of Peter and the Church of Rome, the primacy of Rome in the early centuries of Christian history. Okay, and so let me begin, first of all, with a very, very basic historical narrative. That is, from what we know from the New Testament accounts themselves, again, historical narrative. Peter begins his ministry in Jerusalem. Peter travels to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 9, we find Peter traveling to Joppa, and then in Acts chapter 10, to Caesarea, to the house of Cornelius. In Acts 15, we find Peter back in Jerusalem for the Council of Jerusalem. 
After this, it appears that Peter traveled through Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey, because in his first epistle, we find him writing to the churches in the provinces of, I'm quoting now, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's 1 Peter 1, verse 1. And in the closing of that letter, Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you his greetings. Now, no one believes that Peter traveled to Babylon, and so most understand this as being a covert way of referring to the city of Rome, and therefore identifying Peter as being in Rome at the time that he writes that first epistle. Now, Peter's presence in Rome is strengthened when we look at the early writings outside the New Testament. For instance, Eusebius, uh, the bishop of Caesarea, the same place where Cornelius lived, the Bishop of Caesarea and the first church historian tells us in his uh, book, The Ecclesiastical History, he tells us that a- after having established the church in Antioch, which fits in with the New Testament material, Peter went to Rome, which also fits in, where he remained bishop, Eusebius says, for 25 years before his death under the emperor Nero. This is what Eusebius writes, one of the things he writes. Quote, Nero, in addition to his other crimes, proceeded to make a persecution against the Christians in which Peter and Paul died gloriously at Rome. So I'll just use St. Jerome to kind of summarize. Here's how St. Jerome summarizes the essential, that is, narrative of Peter's life and death as it was understood and accepted at the time. Simon Peter, son of John of the province of Galilee, of the village of Bethsaida, brother of Andrew the Apostle, and himself chief of the Apostles, notice that in there, after his bishopric at Antioch and his preaching to the dispersed of the circumcision who who believed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, in the second year of the emperor Claudius went to Rome and occupied there the sacerdotal seat for 25 years until the last year of Nero. By the way, um, just for those of you who Mm -hmm. are following at home, uh, sacerdotal is like a fancy word for priestly. So there okay. you have it. All right. For 25 years. By Nero then, uh, quoting again from Eusebius, I mean from Jerome, from St. Jerome. By Nero, he was, fashioned, he was fastened to a cross and crowned with martyrdom, his head down toward the earth and his feet raised on high, for he maintained that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He was buried in Rome in the Vatican, that is on the Vatican Hill, near the Via Triumphalis, and is celebrated by the veneration of the whole world. So, to kind of draw this together, the evidence from the writings of the early church, both in the New Testament and then beyond, all of the evidence points to Peter being the first bishop of the Church of Rome and being martyred there around 67 AD. In fact, historically, when you look at Protestant... um, opposition to this basic narrative, most often it's, it seems to be rooted in sola scriptura, the idea being that unless we Catholics can prove from the pages of the New Testament itself that Peter went to Rome, that Peter became the bishop of the church in Rome, and that Peter was martyred in Rome, that somehow this entire scenario needs to be treated as mere Catholic tradition. Um, it's totally up in the air. Who knows that kind of, that kind of an attitude. And yet, Ken, uh, we have all kinds of things that ended up in my history books going to public school that we have far less evidence for yes. than we do for the actual narrative of Peter. You mentioned um, 
him being in Antioch and him going over mm-hmm. to Rome. I mean, not only do we have people who have written stuff like this down, we have archaeological stuff that points to this as well. There's there's a lot, yeah. let's just say. Yeah, yeah. In fact, when you look at scholarship from within the Protestant world, historical scholarship, um, they don't treat it like like you find in Lorraine Bettner's book, uh, Catholicism, or, you know, really anti-Catholic literature. But again, as I said, the opposition is just based on sola scriptura. It's like we have to prove from the New Testament itself these things, these, these points of history. Whereas, uh, for instance, a New Testament scholar, Protestant New Testament scholar, Oscar Kuhlmann, in his book, Peter, Disciple, Apostle, and Martyr, he speaks of Peter's death in Rome, and this is what he says. We do not have even the slightest trace of historical evidence that points to any other place which could be considered the scene of his death. It is a further important point that in the second and third centuries, when certain churches were in rivalry with the one in Rome, it never occurred to a single one of them to contest the claim of Rome that it was the scene of the martyrdom of Peter. And for comparison, there are Mm -hmm. disputes between various churches about martyrdom sites of other apostles. Um, yes, yeah. That, that said, that, well, this guy was martyred in Armenia. No, he was martyred in North Africa. There's, there's some questions about that with the other apostles. No questions about yeah. Peter in the early church. Yeah, when it comes to Peter, you know, this basic historical narrative is, is just really solid. Peter's ministry in Jerusalem, his ministry in Antioch, and then his going to Rome, his being the bishop of Rome, him being martyred in Rome under Nero. In fact, I want to. You mentioned archaeological evidence. I just want to throw this out. I would encourage those who are listening or who are watching take some time to get John Walsh's book, The Bones of Peter, and read it. I mean, it it reads like an exciting detective story. But the bottom line is this: the evidence is strong that the original Church of Saint Peter, Basilica of Saint Peter, that was built under Constantine in the fourth century and then was rebuilt in the 16th century as the St. Peter's Basilica that we, that we now see in Rome, that the earlier church from the 4th century was itself built over a monument that had been placed in the 1st century over the grave of Peter on Vatican Hill, and that to this very day, Peter's bones are interred directly beneath the high altar of St. Peter's Basilica. And, you know, you can go on tours now. It's called the Scavi Tour, where they take you down underneath St. Peter's uh, to where the bones of Peter have been found in the 20th century. So I mean, there's a lot of amazing stuff here, but the bottom line is the historical narrative is solid. Yeah, and again, bear in mind that if you're sola scriptura when it comes to evidence pertaining to what's going on in the Bible, then you can't get excited when archaeology goes and proves, hey, there really was a fishing village that you know existed where the Bible was. Well, we don't care. What we care about is that the Bible says that the apostles came from this place. No, when you find the archaeological evidence, that's like real, actual historical data um, that you can back things up with. So even Protestants who, I mean, if you read like the Biblical Archaeology Mm -hmm. Review, all the time they're finding things that refer to some king that was maybe mentioned only by name in the Old Testament and like, oh, now we know all these things about him, but they're not in the Bible. So can we trust them? You know, right. Right, right. Okay, the historical evidence for the uh, the historical evidence for Peter having gone to Rome and being martyred in Rome is solid and is strong. But at the same time, Matt, the, the the historical evidence for the primacy of the church in Rome, the primacy of the bishop of Rome, the primacy of Peter and his successors, this was something 
that presented me with a great deal to think about in my, uh, at the time that I was beginning to study Catholicism. Um, I read at the time a number of books on this subject. I listened to a number of debates between Protestant and Catholic apologists, in fact, every debate that I could find. And I really struggled for a while with the fact that that while I could see the basis for the Catholic view of Peter and the papacy in the pages of the New Testament, I could see that. And in fact, it seemed strong to me. And I, and I remember being kind of bewildered because I thought, wow, I never saw this stuff before. But, you know, everything we saw in Matthew 16 about Peter and then going back to the idea of the, of the, the you know, the, the grand steward or the grand vizier of the house of David and all that. Right. Okay. While I could see the basis for the primacy of Peter in the New Testament, what I struggled with was the fact that it seems to me that the acceptance of the basic Catholic view was something that developed over time, um, that there was real development in the early centuries of the church, both in the reception of the doctrine and even in the understanding of the doctrine itself. And that's what I want to look at here today. And so, I think it's important that, that, that you bring this up because you know there may be some triumphalist Catholics out there who are like, well, obviously from day one, Peter was the Pope and the guy after him was the Pope and the guy after him was the Pope, come on. And the fact of the matter is, is that this is a struggle for Protestants who have not grown up with that kind of long view of ecclesiology. You know, if you grew up like you and I did, mm-hmm. you know, we have to see the hard and fast evidence that it was that way. And the fact of the matter is, is that it wasn't that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. I know that now as a Catholic. Um, but as I was going through all this, I was... I had mm-hmm. a very similar struggle to what you're about to recount. Yeah, I mean, I mean, although when we were looking at the book of Acts, we definitely see Peter assuming a strong leadership position. But I'm just saying that when you begin to read the early church fathers post-apostolic, you don't have this complete unity right from the beginning on anything. Uh, well, on some things, yes, but you don't have this complete unity. And that, that, was, that was a real struggle for me. First, the positive side, though, because... I can still remember how really struck I was, like a brick to the forehead, really, when I did begin to read the early church fathers, and I caught something of their mindset with respect to the Church of Rome and the place of primacy of Rome and Peter and whatnot. Just the fact that there was anything describing that stuff seemed like crazy to me because I had never given it any thought. And we're going to walk through some of it. But for instance, there was St. Clement's famous letter to the church in Corinth, Okay, Clement is, there's no dispute of this. He's one of the earliest bishops of the Church of Rome, probably bishop number three. His letter to the Church of Corinth may be the earliest post-apostolic document that we have. It's usually dated around 95 AD, but I've seen it dated 80 and even 70 AD. So this is a very early document. Okay, apparently a dissension had taken place in the Corinthian church. There was fighting among the leadership there, and the leadership had reached out to Rome for Uh, what it seems at at minimum, some counsel. So Clement writes this letter. The Bishop of Rome writes this letter to the church in Corinth, and he begins this letter by apologizing for having taken so long to attend to the situation there. This is what he says. Owing, dear brethren, to the sudden and successive calamitous events that have happened to us, We feel that we have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the points about which you consulted us. Okay, from the beginning, Matt, you read it, and there's this authoritative fatherly tone to the letter that Clement writes. And the questions, like right from the beginning, just come off the page. Why has the Church of Corinth reached out to Rome for counsel? I mean, Corinth is in Greece, last time I looked. I mean, it's six or seven or 800 miles as the crow flies from Rome, which is in Italy, 
why do they reach out to the Roman church for, uh, with the problem they're having? Yeah, why and wouldn't why they reach the, out to Antioch, where the believers yeah, were first called Christians? Yeah, or, or Jerusalem. Or, or Constantinople. And why is Clement apologizing for having been tardy in dealing with the situation? So these questions right away, why? But that's not all. Clement offers guidance to the church in great detail, and then he warns his readers of the consequences of not following his instructions. And here's a portion of what he says. Accept our counsel, and you shall have nothing to regret. And he elaborates on that. But should any disobey what has been said by him, through us. And in the context, Matt, the by him is talking about Jesus. He has just referred to Jesus Christ. So accept our counsel and you, you shall have nothing to regret. But should any disobey what has been said by Jesus Christ through us, let them understand that they will entangle themselves in transgression and no small danger. I remember reading this, you know, again, maybe the earliest post-apostolic document in existence and, and thinking, well, I don't know, you know, thinking, wow. Yeah, I remember reading it and thinking, you know, because I had read some later papal stuff with where they use the papal we, right? Like, mm-hmm. we say this and we mm-hmm. say that. And, uh, you know, you you don't talk like that unless you're speaking from a role of authority. Uh, you know, we have decided. Like, I don't come to you, Ken, and say, you know, uh, we are sorry that we took so long to get back to you on, on the notes for this yeah. episode. We understand, Ken, yeah. that you are in need yeah. of our solicitude. No, I mean, I yeah. say, yeah. hey, Ken, I'm sorry. Um, and, and the fact that even Clement was referring to himself in the royal we, you know, kind of showed that there was like a position here that I wasn't expecting yeah. to find. You add up the fatherly tone. You add up the authoritative tone, apologizing for not getting back, warning them that if they don't obey what has been spoken by him or th- by Christ through him. Oh, I mean, the, the whole thing, okay? So he doesn't say bishop, I mean, he, he doesn't talk about the papacy, but he does say those things. Okay, and then then there was the, the seven letters of St. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch. Now, these are written around 110 AD, maybe 117 AD. Again, one of the earliest witnesses that we have, Ignatius was a disciple of the apostle John himself, Now, in his letters, Ignatius says a great deal about the need for each church to be unified around the authority of its bishop. And while he doesn't say anything specifically about the bishop of Rome, he describes the church of Rome in ways that just make it patently clear that he viewed this church as holding a special place of authority among the churches. Listen to what he said. This is, his, this is the introduction, his, his greeting in his letter to the church in Rome. Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the church that has obtained mercy through the majesty of the Most High Father and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, the church that is beloved and enlightened by the will of him who wills all things according to the love of Jesus Christ our God, that presides in the place of the region of the Romans, worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of the highest happiness, worthy of praise, worthy of obtaining her every desire, worthy of being deemed holy, and which presides in love. Now, people have gone back and forth debating what exactly is meant by this phrase, presides in love. This can be debated, but here's how one Eastern Eastern Orthodox, Matt, one Eastern Orthodox theologian comments on this passage in his book, The Primacy of Peter. As you know, the Eastern Orthodox do not accept the papacy, But listen to how he comments on this passage from Ignatius. He, that is Ignatius, pictures the local churches grouped, as it were, in a Eucharistic assembly, 
with each church in its special place and the church of Rome in the chair sitting in the first place. We are not told by Ignatius why the church of Rome should preside and not some other church. To Ignatius, it must have seemed self-evident and proofs a waste of time. In this period, that is in this historical period, no other church laid claim to this role which belonged to the Church of Rome. Okay, so a couple of things here. Actually, you know, one sort of main thing. So Ignatius writes this on a way to his martyrdom, and he he's martyred at what age? He's in his eighties, right? Mm-hmm. This is around I think one, so. yeah, one ten A.D. You subtract eighty from one ten. Ignatius is a baby at the time that Jesus rises from the dead. Essentially, this is not. I mean, you you just read one ten off a page and you assume, well, this is removed from the world of the apostles. Yeah. Ign- no. Jesus has risen from the dead in Ignatius's lifetime, and he's writing this. I mean, that's how close we are to this kind of thinking. Uh, yeah. How close this kind of thinking is to the age of the apostles. And he was a disciple of John. Yeah. So, so, so you have Clement. I, I read these letters of Ignatius and I ran into this. Again, he doesn't, he doesn't say papacy, but he speaks of the church as possessing this, this important uh, central role. And he's, all, and, and he's at the same time speaking continually about how the bishops have this extreme authority and that everyone needs to be united around the bishop, which implies that the bishop of Rome had the authority that he's referring to, okay? Okay, then I, then I walk on to St. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon in southern Gaul. Now, one of the most important, again, of the early church fathers, and in his book, Against Heresies, written in the 180s AD, Irenaeus is talking about the unity. This is powerful. He's talking about the unity of the church and the unity of the church's teaching that at the time was embraced. Uh, he describes it throughout the world. Okay, the unity of the church and its teaching. He says, as I said before, the church having received this preaching and this faith from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, yet she guarded it as if she occupied but one house. She likewise believes these things just as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart. And harmoniously she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she possessed but one mouth. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt. And he continues on. Okay, we have, this is the 180s. This is near the end of the second century. And he's describing this tremendous unity of faith that existed within the church at that time. And then he goes on to explain the basis for this unity, Matt. And what does he focus on? Apostolic succession, and in particular, the unique role of the church at Rome. And I have to read it for it for the, the impact to be felt. It is within the power of all, therefore, in every church who may wish to see the truth, to contemplate clearly the tradition of the apostles manifested throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to reckon up those who were by the apostles instituted bishops in the churches and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our own times those who neither taught nor knew anything like what these heretics rave about. Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, whether by an evil self-pleasing, by vainglory, by blindness and perverse opinion, assemble in unauthorized meetings, 
by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, the universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, Peter first and then Paul, that's the correct order, as also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops, for it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. And again, Matt, Irenaeus doesn't focus on the bishop of Rome. He doesn't talk about the bishop of Rome or the, you know, the authority of the bishop of Rome. He doesn't give us, meaning that he doesn't give us the full Catholic doctrine of the papacy. At the same time, it was so easy for me to see that there was something of the mindset of Clement, of Ignatius, of Irenaeus that was simply light years from anything that I believed as a Baptist. Yeah, there and there's a sense. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and there's a line he, he says in here, and again, as I'm reading Irenaeus, first of all, I'm, I'm not understanding half of what he's saying, because <clears throat> he's arguing with a whole bunch of different heretics along the way. But uh, this line in here when he says, uh, that tradition derived from the apostles of the great, that very ancient and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. Irenaeus knows that the church is actually founded in Jerusalem when Jesus, you know, commissions the 12, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. at Pentecost when, you know, they're, mm-hmm. you know, filled with the yeah. Holy Spirit and, and move on. He's making a point about where headquarters is now. I mean, he's making a clear yeah. point that this is where yeah. the central no. offices are now located. Okay, ring the bells. Okay, yeah, because when you think of it, Peter founded the church in in Jerusalem. He's the one who stood up and preached on that first day of Pentecost. And then he goes and he founds the church in Antioch. And yet, what does what does Irenaeus point to? Okay, if you want to know the truth, we've got to go back to that most ancient, that most glorious, most venerated church in headquarters. Rome. Yeah, the headquarters, headquarters, man. The headquarters. Okay, so again. While, while Irenaeus doesn't describe for us the doctrine of the papacy, uh, in all of these writings, there's this sense that the bishops held a place of authority within each church. And that means something to me, because I, I didn't even have bishops in the Baptist church. You don't even have bishops, okay? Um, and, and there's this sense that the Church of Rome holds this special place of authority among all the churches. And, and if the bishops of each church hold a special place of authority, and the Church of Rome holds this special preeminent place of authority and presiding in love, then the Bishop of Rome holds this by implication, this place of authority. And St. Clement, who's the Bishop of Rome, he seems to be conscious of possessing this special authority over the church, even in Corinth. But then we move on, just a couple of things quickly then. We have Victor, the Bishop of Rome during the time of Irenaeus, excommunicating all of the bishops of the East. Okay, now we don't need to get into the details. And the truth is, Irenaeus talks him out of it at the time. But the very fact that the Bishop of Rome, Victor, operates as though he has this authority just to wave his hand and excommunicate all the bishops of the East over anything, is just speaks volumes as to uh, the concept that he had of himself. We have Origen of Alexandria identifying Peter as, and I'm quoting now, the great foundation of the church, that most solid of rocks upon which Christ built his church. We even have St. Cyprian, Bishop of the church in Carthage in the mid-third century, who argued strongly at times for the equality, that that is the equal authority of each bishop within his own realm. And yet he wrote the following in in his tract, The Unity of the Catholic Church, written in 251 AD. 
quoting him. The Lord says to Peter, I say to you, he says, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and to you I will give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Here's Cyprian writing. On him, Peter, that is, he builds the church and commands him to feed his sheep, John 21, 17. And although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair, cathedra, and he established by his own authority a source and an intrinsic reason for that unity. Indeed, the others were also what Peter was, that is, bishops, but a primacy was given to Peter, by which it is made clear that there is one church and one chair. If one does not hold fast to the unity of Peter, can he think that he holds the faith? If he deserts the chair of Peter upon which upon whom the church was built, can he be confident that he is in the church? And then in his letter to Cornelius, the bishop of Rome in 252 AD, this is what Cyprian said, with a false bishop appointed for themselves by heretics, they dare even to set sail and carry letters from schismatics and blasphemers. They dare to set sail and carry letters even to the chair of Peter and to the principal church in which sacerdotal unity has its source. Again, sacerdotal meaning priestly. Yeah. Unity has its source. Ken, I've got, I've got one more quote, okay, because it builds from there. It just keeps on building, but over the course of the early centuries. But just one more, because this one is kind of special. This is taken from the Arabic canons of the Council of Nicaea in 325, okay? And the reason it's a key statement is because it, it allows us to catch a glimpse of the thinking of the mindset of the Eastern churches at the time of the Council of Nicaea. And listen to it. Canon 39 of the Arabic councils or canons of the care of the power which the patriarch has over the bishops and the archbishops of his patriarchate and of the primacy of the bishop of Rome overall. Let the patriarch consider that things are done by the archbishops and bishops in their provinces, and if he shall find anything done by them otherwise than it should be, let him change it and order it as seemeth fit for him, fit to him. For he is the father of all, and they are his sons. And although the archbishop be among the bishops as an elder brother, who hath the care of his brethren, and to whom they owe obedience, because he is over them, yet the patriarch is to all those who are under his power, just as he who holds the seat of Rome is the head and prince of all patriarchs, inasmuch as he is first, as was Peter, to whom power is given over all Christian princes and over all their peoples, as he who is the vicar of Christ our Lord over all peoples and over the whole Christian church, and whoever shall contradict this is excommunicated by this synod. These are the Eastern churches Matt? In 325. Which, as you know, is decades before even the canon of the New Testament is, is a, well, is, is, is kind of formally Codified. established. Yeah. The formal table yeah. of contents is not, I mean, yeah. even if you want to look for a comprehensive list of books that are in the New Testament, St. Irenaeus, who just also said all that stuff about the primacy of mm -hmm, the Sea mm -hmm. of Rome, is one of our earliest sources of a comprehensive list of the books that belong in the New Testament. I mean, right. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. I mean, you think these things are growing up. Yeah. Well, there's these people who are focused on the Bible, and then there's these people over here who are focused on the papacy and the institutional church. Then you look at Irenaeus, he's talking about mm -hmm. both. He's our best yeah. source in that era for 
authority on both of those questions. You know, there's, as I'm, as I was discovering this, um, first of all, there was this sort of terror that seized me, um, that I felt like I had, I had been part of like venture capitalist Christianity, you know, Mm -hmm. just trying to invent a new brand, (laughs) right? I felt like, I felt like there's just mm-hmm. this immense historical weight of the church. And I was just like trying to say, no, man, this is what the Bible means. And I just felt like a fool, <laughs> you know, it was this sort of yeah weird and, thing. But, you know, but, and all these, uh, and all these little phrases that are buried in these quotations that we didn't even stop and comment on though. Like when Irenaeus talks about those who are gathering in, in unauthorized gatherings and I'm thinking, that's me. That's that's you know, me, dude. I, I mean, because he's obviously talking about this unity of the faith that is based on apostolic succession and the Church of Rome and the whole world at the time agrees in Germany and Spain and all that. And he says, and they they don't teach the church doesn't teach anything like these madmen who are raving and meeting together in unauthorized groups. Just all yeah. these little. And if it was just Irenaeus, or if it was just Cyprian yeah. of Carthage, or if it was just Ignatius of Antioch, or if it was just yeah. Clement. Or if it was just this group of Arabic-speaking Christians at the Council of Nicaea, I'd be like, well, that's just, that's whatever. The problem was is that when I ran into the same debates that you were talking about, Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even know if we watched some of the same ones, Mm -hmm. it all sort of runs together after a while because uh, there's just so much much noise. What I found is that the Catholic Church said, we don't have evidence of the word Pope back then either. We just know this is how leadership was understood, and today we call that the papacy. Whereas the Protestant sources that I was relying on to help get me out of this, Mm -hmm. right? These are the people I needed to be right. The best they could say is, well, that's not enough proof. Yeah. They couldn't say, well, this is, this alternatively, this is what happened. All they could say, they, because they couldn't provide an alternative, the sources, the debaters, the apologists on the Protestant side that I was looking to desperately for help, Mm -hmm. all they could say is, well, that's not enough proof. Yeah, because we can find some people speaking that seem to disagree with it, you know, uh, along the way. You know, there, there's a there's there, there's not a total unity of um of a faith in this doctrine from the beginning and consistent no, among but all the enough. writers. There's yeah. enough. Well, I mean, I'm reading this thing from the Arabic councils, and and I I I've noticed not only are there bishops at the time 325 A.D. I didn't have bishops at all in my church. I, maybe you did in the Methodist church. Yeah, there's bishops, right? Yeah, but, there's bishops. But okay, in the Nazarene church, we had district superintendents, right? You know. Yeah, well, okay, there are bishops there, but then there, there are archbishops that are over the bishops, and then there are patriarchs that are over all of them. And, and then, you still it, see it, those, by yeah, the way, in the yeah. Eastern churches and the Orthodox, yeah. the Eastern Catholic yes, churches and the Orthodox churches today. This same model holds. Yeah, and so they're describing the patriarchs being over the archbishops who are over the bishops, and then they say, but then over all of them, is this one who they call the vicar of Christ our Lord. Whoever shall contradict this is excommunicated. And all this is, again, decades before the councils of Rome, Hippo and Carthage, at which the 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 27 books of the of the New Testament are firmly and formally kind of announced to the church. And again, back to Irenaeus. Irenaeus, the same source we use when we're looking at how did the early church, one of the same sources we use when mm-hmm. we say how did the early church you know, which books did the early church believe were the Bible? I mean, it's the same sources in yeah. a lot of ways. Okay, so here's what I'm coming to in my story, in, in, term, in terms of my story, is that is that as I was reading all of this and I was listening to the debates and all, 
I could see that the Catholic conception of the papacy is definitely forming in these early centuries of the church, being more and more elaborated and more and more formalized and agreed upon. On the other hand, a Protestant apologists, and this bothered me, of course, I had to struggle with this. Protestant apologists, they had no problem presenting evidence that seemed to go in the other direction. Early Christian writers who did not see Peter as the rock of Matthew 16, who said that the rock was Jesus, whether the rock was Peter's faith, or who, who maybe said, yeah, Peter's the rock, but he's no different than the other apostles, and didn't seem to have any, uh, early Christian writers who didn't seem to have a sense that this meant something for the Church of Rome or the Bishop of Rome and, or, and the successors to Peter, uh, possessing some kind of authority over the entire church. And so I found myself thinking, uh, being kind of bifurcated, that is that while I could see the basis for the papacy in the pages of the New Testament, the universal acceptance of all that was involved or that Catholic see is being involved in Jesus' words to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and I give you the keys. This is something that evolved over several centuries. It wasn't something everyone just knew from the get-go, clearly, and it wasn't something that everyone accepted or agreed on from the get-go or even uh, or even right away. It's something that, that, that developed over time and and here, Matt, is what was becoming clear to me in all this, that in order to embrace the essential Catholic understanding of the role of Peter and the successors, the bishops of Rome, I was going to have to believe that the Holy Spirit was leading the church in this development to embrace this understanding. And I kind of slowly realized that this was a key question, a really key question that I was going to have to wrestle with. Did Christ, the head of his body, his life coursing through his church, did he lead the church in these early centuries to the development of their doctrine, of the doctrinal positions that they came to? Because as a Baptist, I viewed all of this evidence in the early centuries of the church as evidence of a departure from a simple, from the simple quote-unquote teaching of the New Testament. And the Catholic Church is making a contrary claim and saying, no, no, this is the Holy Spirit leading the church to develop its belief, its beliefs. And you and I both believed that the Holy Spirit led the church at the Council of Jerusalem to come to its decision. We both, I'm sure we both believed that the Holy Spirit led the church reflecting on scripture and tradition to the correct view of the canon of the New Testament, or that the Holy Spirit was leading the church at the Council of Nicaea to define the hypostatic union, the human and divine natures, or that the Holy Spirit was leading the church at Constantinople to, you know, to make a stand on the full personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. We probably believe these things, right? The Holy Spirit was leading Even this. if we didn't believe that's how they came about, right? We still believe these things. We believe them. So the question was in the air. Did I believe the Holy Spirit was leading the church to its understanding of baptism or the Eucharist as a sacrifice? made by priests on an altar, or apostolic succession, or the papacy. To believe this was to become Catholic. And so that was the question. Where were you at at a certain point on this? Do you remember? I, I remember. I'm going to try and see if I can articulate this the right way. Um, I think for me, the, the gut punch, the I got to jump out of this airplane... I hope this parachute mm -hmm. holds moment was when I realized unless you have <clears throat> this, you don't get the Bible. 
Like mm-hmm. unless you <laughs> unless you have a structure with authority and a centralized authority at that, you don't have the Bible. Ken, if if we were to gather the churches in your town, let's just say little old Los Angeles. Actually, let's just say your little suburb of Los Angeles, and you and three other churches in your area mm-hmm. were to get together and say, guys, we got to decide which books are in the Bible and which books aren't. Yeah, forget everything we've known. We need to go back and look at the historical evidences. And we, just we three churches are going to just look at and we're going to decide. Do you think you all three would come to the same list? Do you think that if you did come to the same list, we would say, well, that's just what Fillmore Baptist says. That's not what we believe. Well, I, like without this, you don't get the Bible. I mean, you don't get the canon of the New Testament without this in place. It's, I, I mean, mean, that's that, that I to mean, me was just a, a gut-wrenching conclusion that, again, yeah. was new to me, but, of course, the churches, Christians just sort of understood this up until about 1500, and then chaos ensued. But this, to me, it was a revelation. It was, a sh- it was shocking mm-hmm. new information. Um, kind of especially when so. you began to learn that in some churches, the letter of Clement to the church in Corinth was read. And was read for a long time. I mean, for decades, that the letters the of Ignatius of were read. Yeah, Barnabas, Barnabas was read. So, so it's not like it, it's not like everybody knew. Well, there's 27 books, and so we need and to Philemon's Phile- Philemon's <laughs> got to be in there. Philemon has to be in there. Don't you understand? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, when you began to realize, I remember wasn't the talk. I remember hearing a talk that was called the Church and scripture both or neither something like like that you know that that that, yeah that if you didn't if you didn't believe i'm describing it as trusting the holy spirit's leading if you didn't believe that the holy spirit was in the church leading the church to decisions that are firm and binding then then the canon is up in the air for you and uh and all these things are up in the air you know for you a whole lot of things and and hopefully I know that there's a lot of people who mm-hmm. listen here who come from Protestant backgrounds and are Catholic, but I know that there are probably a lot of people. I know there are definitely a lot of people listening to this who mm-hmm. come from Protestant Christian backgrounds who are not Catholic and maybe only slightly considering or maybe not considering at all. This is why I'm so sympathetic to you, because I remember just the the panic mm-hmm. um, that I felt mm-hmm. when I started to discover stuff that was not consistent with. I won't say not consistent with the research I had previously done, but not consistent with the assumption that I had already had. And I know that there are people who yeah, are watching who yeah. are a lot more studied in their Protestant backgrounds than I was when I started to hit these, um, these, I, I wanted to call them like landmines. But um, but I hope that people listening who are not where we are now understand that we are extremely sympathetic because this was earth shattering for me. Yeah, it, it, it was earth shattering for me uh, in this sense as well that, that if I had ever gone to a Bible study and I had heard someone say, well, I know this is the right interpretation because the Holy Spirit led me to it, <laughs> you know, I would have thought they were nuts. So I was on the opposite side of, of ever talking like, well, I think the Baptists are right because the Holy Spirit led us to this system of theology and the Presbyterians are wrong because the Holy Spirit didn't lead them or the Lutherans are wrong or the Nazarenes or the Methodists or the, you know, the Wesleyans, whatever. Um, I didn't talk that way, and I didn't think that way. It was chapter and verse. It was you need to establish from the details, the exegetical details of the text, what you believe. And so for me to come down to this question of, wow, the watershed then is, do I believe the Holy Spirit led the church? 
Because on this doctrine of the papacy, like on the doctrine of baptism or the Eucharist or many other things, I could see the seeds of all of it in the New Testament, but if I had to prove it from the New Testament alone, then I would be like, I can't prove this. There are other ways of reading these passages that are at least plausible. And so I had to believe that the Holy Spirit was leading the church to this conclusion. And in fact, this is so crucial to my own conversion that this is what I want to do next week is I want us to just look at this question of the leading of the Holy Spirit and the church and focus on this and elaborate on it in more detail as we begin to bring, you know, to summarize then this series on scripture, tradition, and magisterium and bring it to a close over the next couple of weeks. Again, it's the question behind the question. When you've got 10 people in a room, and Vincent of Lorenz, your buddy, talks about this you know, in depth. you got 10 people in a room mm-hmm. all looking at the same verse. All saying, saying it is written. <laughs> it is All saying it is written, and all saying something slightly different. The question is not which one has the answer that sounds the best. The question is who has the authority mm-hmm. to say what this really means? And that's the question really that's been driving us for 5,000 episodes now in the, at this point in the series. But uh, hopefully you've okay. gotten something out of it. Um, in the meantime, if you want to uh, come on a Coming Home Network retreat, if you're having questions along the way um, as you seek Christ and Catholicism is part of those questions, we do have these Coming Home Network retreats, and they're really neat experiences. And uh, we encourage you to go to chnetwork slash, I'm sorry, chnetwork.org slash retreats. Uh, Houston, October 11th through the 14th. Ken will be there. Check it out. You can, uh, you can tell him how he's wrong to his face. Do it. Just like Paul did to Peter. In the meantime, thank you so much. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. You too, Matt.